Welcome to Creating Synergy, where we explore what it takes to transform. We are powered by Synergy IQ. Our mission is to help leaders create world-class businesses where people are safe, valued, inspired, and fulfilled. We can only do this with our amazing community. So thank you for listening. Hey there, Synergizers, and welcome back to another episode of the Creating Synergy podcast. I am Daniel Franco, your host, and today we have ventured our way down to the beautiful new Hospital Research Foundation office at Woodville to speak to a man who radiates positivity and he's just so giving of his time, Mr. Paul Flynn. Paul is the Chief Executive Officer of the Hospital Research Foundation, which is a non-for-profit business whose sole aim is to fight for the health of every individual. They are on a mission to fight for cures, better treatment, improved care, prevention of diseases and suffering, fighting to advance research faster than ever against enemies such as cancer, heart disease, stroke and dementia, plus many, many more. You may also know the Hospital Research Foundation for their amazing home lottery where they're known for their beautiful million-dollar homes and large prize giveaway. Paul is an experienced, innovative and entrepreneurial board director and an executive who has earned a stellar reputation not only in business but just for being a great human being. Paul has more accolades than you can poke a stick at. He's been awarded the Fellowship of Financial Services Institute of Australasia, Ernst Young, Social Entrepreneur of the Year for South Australia and NT, and the Equity Trustees Australian Non-for-Profit CEO Award for Innovation, just to name a few. In today's podcast, we learn a lot about Paul's journey, the challenges he faced when he first became the CEO of the Hospital Research Foundation, and his innovative approach to leading a business. We also discuss how he became a father for the first time at the age of 50, and how he manages his family life amongst his hectic schedule and how his belief that mistakes are fundamental and an investment into training and development. I absolutely know that you'll enjoy listening to this podcast as much as I did chatting to Paul. I hope you enjoy. All right, welcome back to the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, and today we have the CEO of the Hospital Research Foundation, Paul Flynn. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you, Daniel. I appreciate the invitation. You're doing some amazing work out in the world at the moment. Uh, a lot of people know the Hospital Research Foundation through the, the Home Lottery program that you guys run. But before we get into that, can you give us a little bit of a background about yourself, how you got to uh, where you are today? And yeah, obviously want to learn a little bit about Paul Flynn, the man, the family man, the work man, all the above. Well, I'm a, a local product of, of Adelaide, Daniel. Um, I went to a high school not far from here. I went to Findon High School and um, had had a number of choices as I was leaving school. I was uh, accepted into the Defence Force Academy, but also had been advised um, that uh, I had a job waiting for me at the Commonwealth Bank back in the late 70s. Uh, you used to sit an exam and and they told you six months out that, you okay, you've got a job coming up. It wasn't quite the same as it was these days. And um, in, in 1979, I just uh, decided that I, I wanted to uh, pursue a working career to start with and went and worked for Commonwealth Bank. Um, I don't, I don't, I've never regretted that, to be honest. I, I, I know a lot of people in, in defence who are, you know, current serving or veterans. And, um, you know, they, they have to... Uh, 
they, they've given a lot of their life uh, for their for their service. So I've never regretted not doing it, if you like. Mm-hmm. So I went to the Commonwealth Bank when I was eighteen, and uh, it was a government, a federal government owned entity. Amazing uh, education and training programs. To be honest, uh, you know they used to call it the Commonwealth Training Bank. Actually, yeah, uh, they just pumped so much uh, training and development into the into their staff. They paid for my outside of work education. I was there for 15 years. I I, I quickly moved into uh, a um, a commodities dealing and trading role. So I was uh, ended up there as the um, uh, head of trade finance, or sorry, trade finance manager and senior dealer in in foreign exchange, which took me you know around Australia uh, a bit. So trading currencies was a was a, a unique area in the Commonwealth Bank. And um, I was there, I was at the bank, as I said, for about fifteen years, I think, from memory. Um, I while I was there, I studied studied in an area in the an area specific to to commodities trading, and and then started presenting myself as a, a, a tutor and a lecturer, and and through those through those lecturing opportunities, um, I was at the Graduate School of Management, Adelaide Uni, lecturing there, and. One of my one of my students came up to me and said, "Look, you know, I'm from the Cooperative Building Society, and we're about to become a bank, and uh, you know, I think we'd like to offer you a job." And and you know, it's always very flattering. So I caught up with them literally the next day. So lecturing in finance. Lecturing in finance. Yeah. I used to lecture in um, uh, commodity trading, uh, bonds, bonds trading, financial statement analysis, yeah, right. things like that. Just it, just did it on the side actually for a bit of fun. I used to quite enjoy it. <laughs> And um, I had this lunch at um, lunch at a restaurant with these people from the co-op. It was I can remember vividly. It was November um, nineteen ninety three, and it was one of those you know push slide a piece of paper across the yeah. the table at you, and yeah. you know that's what we'd like to offer you. And I flicked it over and I thought about it for you know three or four seconds and said yes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that's quite flattering then. Yeah, well, it was. <laughs> uh, uh, I spent. Um, uh, an interesting eight or nine years at, at Adelaide Bank, so we converted to a bank. Um, got again, got lots of opportunities there. Ended up as one of their senior executive team. Um, I, I went in as a as a, a people manager, if you like, mm-hmm. which was interesting in itself, having just been a commodities trader, and then all of a sudden you're managing people. And the thing I learned actually there very early was when you're dealing in large, vast sums of money, it's very impersonal. Mm-hmm. But when you're dealing with people's money, it's very personal, yeah. and that was probably the biggest thing I noticed almost from day one. And I ended up uh, running uh, a, a sort of department there that looked after marketing and HR and product development, financial planning. There might have been one other department in there from memory. Um, <clears throat> but I, I wasn't fulfilled. Um, I was on the board of a, a not-for-profit, and I, I quite enjoyed that. And one of Adelaide's oldest charities, it was called Townsend House, and they offered me the position of the CEO and I thought this is great. This could, you know, meet my um, altruistic, you know, itch to scratch that particular part yeah. of my my function. And I ended up uh, the CEO of that uh, organisation. Changed its name to the Can Do, Can Do for Kids. And then we facilitated a few mergers. I did lots of property development, retirement village development to fund the children's programs. Set up a um, uh, the Australia's first community-owned internet service provider while we were there sold internet services into the retirement villages it was it was quite an interesting time and then when i left there in in 2009 i probably decided i was 
I'd had a marriage, had a divorce, and I was kind of ready to maybe retire. Um, well, that was my thinking at the time. Yeah. And then um, – So what year a, was this? It was mid-2009. Yeah. And I, I, myself and a mate, I just met a new um, a new partner who's gone on to be my life partner. And I I sort of said, look, I, I need to go traveling for a bit. And so I went off with a, an old mate of mine and we were, were doing an extended camping trip through the outback. And we got to about six weeks in with the plans of doing, you know, two or three months. Yeah. And we're sitting around the campfire one night and I said, I'm getting a bit bored with this <laughs> and he said oh, me too South African guy me too actually and uh, so we we packed up and headed back to Adelaide the next day and on my way we were literally driving through um, I think uh, Tennant Creek or one of those and my phone rang and it was um, an old friend of mine who was on the board of the then Queen Elizabeth Hospital Research Foundation saying look you know we've been out without a CEO for three or four months and it'd be really good if you could come in and have a chat to us and um which I said I would, but I can't. I, I was talking to a couple of uh, recruitment agents, and there was another job. There was another job that was made available to me in the for, back in the for-profit space, which I, which I, after a couple of interview, interviews, had had said yes to, and and then um, Melinda O'Leary, actually, who's the the wife of um, Jim Wally, the state chief entrepreneur, who, mm -hmm. who's who's been a, a friend of mine for thirty plus years. She probably wouldn't like me to say that, but <laughs> maybe maybe longer. Yeah. And and she said, look, you know, we want to offer you this role, and and I, I kind of had a I, I kind of had my fill of not for profit, but then then she said, look, you know, here's here's what's facing the organisation, and I just love a challenge, and so I had to turn around to the other organisation and say, I'm sorry, I've accepted the role, but I'm not going there, uh, and and took on the role as the CEO of the old Queen Elizabeth Hospital Research Foundation, which was um, an interesting at an interesting stage in its development, quite challenging. And I've been here now for just over ten or eleven years, um, and through all that period, like I got, I got married when I was very young, mm -hmm. um, and my my first wife and I are still good friends, but we should never have been husband and wife, and yeah. so that was a very short marriage. We're very good friends still, and then I was eighteen years with my second wife, and um, she, you know, uh, we just grew apart. She, you know, she didn't want to be married anymore, and. and for, for, to be honest, for good reasons for her benefit. She had a few health issues. Yep. I've got a stepdaughter from that relationship who I'm still very close to. She's almost 30. And then uh, my partner and I, Sam, who's who's been amazing, actually. Um, you know, we've we've been together for almost 12 years. And, you know, I've got a, a, a stepson who lives with us full time. He's, he's like my son. <laughs> and we had a child, my first biological child, who's now nine. So it's been... You know, one of life's gifts, really, to yeah. uh, to experience parenthood, uh, both through the eyes of a step parent, which is challenging, yeah, but fulfilling. But then, you know, to at fifty to be able to have have your own child with with someone who just gets you, it's a it's an amazing uh, amazing opportunity, which I've absolutely relished. Congratulations! Now we'll go into the. Um, I'm interested in the workplace and uh, the family life aspects. We'll go into, we'll dive into that a bit later on in the chat. It's a great journey. So you started in 2009 or 2010? at Here hospital? in 2009, so 2009. late late 2009 and it was a, a, a smallish organisation, had 11 staff. It was, it was a challenging time for, for the organisation. It had been through some, you know, dramatic upheaval, um, you know, board, you know, board, Challenges at board level, yep. 
um, you know, challenges with the the previous um, executive director. Um, all, all, you know, two sides to every story, but there was challenges, and mm. and they just hadn't had a, a a leader for a while. Internally, there'd been you know some some accusations of harassment between staff members, and it was it was, it was you know, like my view is if if you go into an organisation, you, you're either good at keeping the wheel turning, or or you want to you want to go into an organisation organisation that's got challenges to meet, and mm. that's that's me. And I'm a great believer that if you can get everyone to accept that there's challenges, so everyone's got their backs to the wall, then everyone's heading in the straight, the right direction. Yeah. They're all facing the right direction. Yeah. That makes it. You know, people find it strange when I say this, but if if you go into an organisation that's got a lot of problems, as long as everyone accepts its problems, then you, you've got it easy. Yeah, you know, it's you're going the to only way is up. The only way is up. Yeah, and you go into an organisation that's got you know seemingly no problems. And oh my God, that would be hard work. Yeah. You know? yeah. uh, so it's I've, a maintenance job. Then, it yeah. is a maintenance <laughs> job, and no organisation has no problems. And so sometimes you have to create, um, you have to put together the facts so that they 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 are perceived to be an existential threat, mm. and get everyone on on board. Yeah. So the, the Queen Elizabeth Hospital Research Foundation was was having a having impact. It was having impact. Um, it was doing okay financially, but but not setting the world on fire, um, and and really the, what they needed for the first few months was someone to put their arms around them and say everything's going to be okay. Yeah, you know, and and here's a plan. You so know. you've come in after twelve months, <coughs> changed the name and moved. Yeah, pre- yeah. And so moved, and moved premises. Well, so I, I kind of had throwing a, the axe around. Yeah, <laughs> my view was, um, you know, yeah. Which is always my view is, yeah. you know, what, what do you want to achieve? What do you yeah. want to achieve? Do you want to, do you want, do you just want to be an also ran or do you want to make impact? Yeah. It doesn't matter what, doesn't matter what career you choose. doesn't matter what you're, you're, you're a landscaper or you're a chief exec. It doesn't matter. You want to make impact. Yeah, you know, you just absolutely. don't want to turn up and do your job and, and, um, and get paid for it. And, um, that, that was really my mother. My mother, um, you know, drove that thought into all of, all of my siblings and I. You know, make a make a difference. Mm. You know, be be the difference if you like. like and um, and so uh, we, I I said to the board at the time, I said, look, you know, I think that there's you know there's the potential for us to make a much bigger impact in the community, uh, but we're gonna have to take some risks to do that. And um, my board had a lot of foresight. I had a, had a, a, a I've had a series of very good chairpersons. So um, Lee Boys was the chair when I started, and. Then Melinda O'Leary became chair, and now Steve Rodder is chair, and three you know very good chairpersons, and a very supportive board. No, we don't always agree on things, but a very supportive board. And I'm a servant of the board, so that, that I think that's really important. That you know, in, a, in a, particularly in the not-for-profit space, you, you can't be a di- executive director. You, you wield too much influence as mm. it is. These people are volunteer, part-time directors. Our board is a, a skills-based board. People are selected based on what our needs are and what their skills are, but um, and we have a we have a, a degree of delegation that allows me to get on and do you know do the things on a day to day basis. But equally, I have to understand that I don't have a back drawer that says wisdom, <laughs> and so that's why you have a board. Absolutely. And, and I often say to I, I speak to a lot of emerging executives, and and I, and I, and I the, the common piece of advice I give them when when and you will always get to this point when you get to a point where you think to yourself, geez, I wish I didn't have to report to a board, that's the time to get out mm. because you actually need that board there yeah. to to uh, 
keep nudging nudging the horse, you know, with their yeah. knee. So would you ask yourself that question? Would you say that to yourself if the board are cooperative or uncooperative? Oh, you know, I, I, I have this discussion with my board on a regular basis. If, if I'm not happy with your decisions when I propose something to you, like I have a pretty significant delegation, mm -hmm. but that's come with trust, mm -hmm. okay? Um, but if I'm not happy when I go to the board and ask for ask for something, if I'm not happy, I have choices. I can leave. Mm. You know, the, the, you know, don't don't the the cemetery. My father used to say to me, the cemetery is full of people that can't be replaced. <laughs> okay, yeah. and, and that is true. Don't think that the world revolves around you. There are plenty of other people who could come in and make a big impact. And so your job is to make sure that with the tools you're given, with the colleagues that you have in your organisation, that you can make as big an impact in the community as you possibly can and often to achieve your impact you actually have to take risks uh, our industry is our industry is starting to emerge with with leaders who who are have have better business focus right. rather than that than are um, you know passionately aligned to the cause yeah. we we you know you, you can you can be a you can be aligned to the cause, but still also have a business focus as well. And I think our industry, the not for profit industry, it's a huge industry in Australia. It is um, is now starting to emerge with with um, at board level and at CEO level uh, some pretty good pretty good business people. Yeah, and the, and the community should be really proud of that for our industry. It is a very very important industry. Some of the work mm. uh, that all non for profits are doing. Um, you're, you're a purpose-led leader uh, from what I'm gathering through this conversation and knowing a little bit about, about you in the background to come in and I guess make those changes straight away in, in your first 12 months, change the name to the Hospital Research Foundation, move premises and start the evolution into what we know the Hospital Research Foundation today. It takes a bit of courage as a leader to come in in the first 12 months to do that. Were you supported I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that that premise i actually think it it takes laziness laziness not to do it not to do okay it. and so you know the if, if the, that's what you are hired to do you're hired to create an you know to have an impact you know we've we've got a if you think about a if you think about a uh, our our the way we approach business um if you if, if you if you conceptualize a venn diagram okay mm -hmm. two circles yep and on <clears throat> there is four hundred and sixty thousand not for profits in Australia. Mm -hmm. So there's you know for every man, woman, and child, there's one for every kind of eight to ten people, which mm. is a lot. A lot. The vast majority, I'd say four hundred and sixty-six thousand five hundred of those <laughs> started with a really good cause. And mm. so the cause might be the local footy club. The cause might be. You know, a family whose child died, and they want to set up a, a charitable endeavour in in honour of that child. They all started a really good cause. Cause causes are great, but they don't have longevity. And so, mm. cause needs to become brand. So, mm. if you think about one circle in the Venn diagram as cause going to expanding to brand, yep. And then on the other side of the circle, <clears throat> what the community what the community wants to know is they want to, they want to know you have impact, and they want to know that you can be trusted. And you know, I, I, I would I, I say to you that um, you probably trust our organisation, but in fact, it's really important for me to say to you, you can trust me, mm. okay? Because that frames the conversation, and so trust in our space is driven by really good governance, not not 
so not just not just really good governance, but the perception of really good governance, and also um, complete complete and unfettered transparency. Mm. So if you can grow the trust circle and you can grow the brand circle, so that they cross over, that space that they cross over in our in our industry is called um, our our um, social license. Yep. So that crossover space is our social license. So I'm always trying to increase the social license space and that, that allows for growth. So to go back to your original question, um, are you taking a risk? Are you, uh, you know, do you have to be courageous to do that? You have to be courageous. You have to be stupid and <laughs> stupidly courageous <laughs> yeah. not to do it. Yeah. You know, um, otherwise what's the point? Yeah. And um, uh, I, I, I sit back now and I look at our, you know, what's going on both in federal and not in South Australia, but, but some other states, federal and state governments in other states. And I kind of think to myself, you know, when, when, when the government can allow, you know, the, the, um, uh, the, you know, a, a statutory authority uh, to to pay out, you know, Cartier watches, or, or the, the premier of New South Wales can think it's okay to shred, you know, grant documentation for two hundred and fifty million dollars grants, or, or hide from the community that, you know, she had an intimate relationship, with, you know, one of the, one of the you know, most corrupt politicians going around, then, you know, we have our our moral and ethical compass in this country is really sad. Yeah, um, I'm not perfect and I've, you know, I've made plenty of mistakes. But, you know, what and, – and some of those mistakes are, are mistakes you would never want to repeat again. But, you know, learn from your mistakes. Be be open about them and move on. And people can be very forgiving. Yes. Um, and so we as an organisation back in those days, I think it was – it would have been very lazy for us to sit back and go, you know, we'll just keep doing what we're doing, you know, making a small impact in a small area where we had the capacity to to grow. We had some good people in our team. I headhunted a couple of couple of people who I'd worked with before and I said, you know, here's, here's, here's the starting point. And the starting point for us was establishing a long-term strategic plan. So I think it's really important in the not-for-profit space to first go back to your constitution, say what do your constitution say you're obliged to do? Yep. And then create a strategic plan with, um, you know, some short, medium, and long-term objectives. And, and I like to think about them as innovation objectives. And so, you know, the first area of innovation I think should be optimization. What can I do? What can I do in the next five minutes that I would normally do, but do it more efficiently? Mm -hmm. Is there any better ways to do things? And you know, when someone comes into a new organisation, you said first twelve months. That's the time you've got to make change yeah. you know, in your first twelve months. And so we we talk about optimization in this organization every every of every one of my colleagues has a has a position has a um, key performance indicator around optimization right. can you do something different that makes it more efficient um, for what we currently do and then then the next level and this is I guess going back to your question the next one is strategic innovation and so do we have a skill set that could be used for other things to make a bigger impact so do we have an existing skill set that can be used for other things and I think that's an important question for any leader to ask of their team. You know, is do you have more capacity? Do you do you have more brain power? Do you have more infrastructure that can be used for other things? We've got public amenities at the moment that are worth billions of dollars that are only used between nine a.m. and five p.m. Hmm. You know, I, I just think that's ridiculous. You <laughs> yeah. know, we've got the Royal Adelaide Hospital. I have to say, surgery often at Royal Adelaide Hospital starts at three o'clock in the morning and doesn't finish till ten o'clock at night. But we have a hospital that's there twenty four hours a day. Hmm. The only thing that holds us back is our industrial 
situ- relation yeah. situation. Um, and then the last area, which I think is really important in in the strategic plan, is what we call blue sky or BHAGs. You know, mm-hmm. um, and blue sky is is there something that we could do if we put a little bit of work into it now just to test the water? And we've we've been very fortunate in this organisation that all of our blue sky, all of our blue sky objectives have eventually come off. Great. Um, and and so that was that's what I'm paid to do though. Yeah. You know, I'm not paid be, I'm, I'm paid because of my 40 years of experience, yeah. not, not my, you know, what I'm, you know, my Absolutely. day-to-day role. So I'm paid to create an impact in our community and and we have the trust of the community to to uh, it would be dis it would be dishonest and distrustful for us not to use our resources for community good. Long answer to a short question. No, it's fantastic. You gave (laughs) some great points. The BHAG, I guess, which is the big, hairy, audacious goal, was the home lottery, your introduction of the home lottery, was that one of your big goals? No. So we, uh, my predecessor had had brought in uh, uh, some ideas from overseas um, and had started it. Um, And I I looked at that and I go, we're just not taking, we're not, we're not taking enough risk. So Mm. I have to say to acknowledge my predecessor and and the previous board, um, they brought the home lottery into South Australia. I suppose what we've done is is honed the honed the balance sheet risk element of it. Yeah. So, you know, we we've we've slowly built a strong balance sheet, and we use that balance sheet to leverage risk appropriately to make sure we can return a better impact to the community. So, I guess my addition to that is to say, you know, why you know why are we just you know, why are we small? Mm. You know, why why can't we be bigger? The market seems to like it. And what's that what that's done is it's created a brand category, mm-hmm. if you like. So we have a brand category around major lotteries and, and we are the the largest and the first. Um and I don't begrudge any other organization looking at, you know, looking at our market and saying, Oh, we you know, we want a piece of that. But what they soon work out is it's not quite that easy. There's a lot it's, of yeah. there's a lot of sophistication that goes into it. And so, yeah, I've I've really leveraged the original idea and made it into something that's um, synonymous in South Australia. Everyone seems to know it. We we um, we brand survey a lot, and it's it's very well known. And then what we've done is we've used the the surpluses from those lotteries to, to create a really big impact in the health sector and in the not for profit space. The health sector is the sector that the community responds to I and mean, this is this is not me talking this is data the the health sector is is the area that the community wants the most impact from yeah and so in that sense it's a bit easier like I'm, yeah. not, I'm not trying to market to to someone that isn't interested everyone's interested in health um, either for themselves or or uh, you know for their family members but everyone's interested in it so that makes it a little bit easier um but yeah we've 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 created a brand category yeah, and an amazing brand that out. We'll go. I'm going to ask you some marketing stuff and brand, sure. uh, brand category stuff uh, a bit later on. What I'm interested in, if you, if you do the basic basic math, and it's you know seventy five thousand odd tickets that you sell at a hundred bucks a ticket, you're earning some good coin. The once you've paid back all your overheads and everything else that goes into the properties, how does the how does the remainder get split across because you've got various organizations and charities that you sure. uh, put into research how do you decide where yeah, well, that it's, goes? It's, it's a little it's a little bigger than yeah. that i yeah. guess so it's it's you know, a couple of hundred thousand tickets three times a year so yeah. so the volume is is very big now yeah. and it, it's quite risky so you know each 
each time. And we also have a, a quite a large philanthropic support. But I guess in one sense, for those people who philanthropy was, they are ambiguous about philanthropy, what we've given them is a product that seems like philanthropy but also has a potential to get something out of it. So I, I would call it, I'd still call it philanthropy, mm -hmm. but I, but people can get something back. Yeah. Tax deductibility has become less important mm -hmm. to people because, um, simply because um, we've got a, a casualisation of the workforce and we've got a um, progressive tax system that has the people on the lowest income sometimes paying, quite appropriately, sometimes paying little or no tax. Mm -hmm. And so therefore tax deductibility is irrelevant to them. Yep. And so the lottery fills that space. They still get their philanthropic yeah. itch scratched. Um, then um, what we do is that we have a, um, you know, it, it's it's like casting into the abyss sometimes. We have to kind of uh, work out how much we think we'll have next year because mm -hmm. uh, the um, accounting standards don't really let you, you know, hold over hold over proceeds of lotteries. And, and so we have to we have to cast forward and take a big punt. Each lottery that we sell, as soon as we sell the first ticket, we've got to cover, you know, between seven and eight million dollars in costs. So it's yep. quite a big risk. Our yeah. board, our board trusts us, um, trusts our governance process to mm -hmm. do that. And then the surpluses are um, applied to um, either direct grants or grants for uh, research or patient care, or to cover um, historical grants that have future revenue. Uh, that have future expenditures. So, mm -hmm. you know, many of our grants are, you know, five years. And if I give a five-year grant in 2020, the recipient of the grant wants to know that we're going to have enough money in 2025 to pay that yeah. year. And so yeah. we have a we have what's called a research reserve. And we put any surpluses after direct payments each year into that research reserve to cover um, unfunded well, sorry, to make sure that our liabilities are funded going forward. Yep. And we have a target to make sure that we can we can run, you know, three years worth of grant programs and the and the, the, the progressive, you know, th five years after those three years. So we, we, we have a target to make sure we could fund research out for eight years yep. even if we didn't make a dollar yeah, today. So right. it's um it's a it's job. it's a very um people look at our balance sheet and it's not a lazy balance sheet at all. Um <laughs> Uh, it works. <laughs> it works really hard at making sure that we can meet our commitments uh, and going forward. And we're very proud of the way we manage our manage our balance sheet. So then, <clears throat> in the in the organisation, we have a, um, a head of research strategy and programs. Uh, she's a uh, her name is Dr. Camille Moliere. Very interesting in her own right. She's a, um, a MD, public health physician. has a has a master's degree in public health and health economics. Um, makes her a, a much sought after a commodity in South Australia. I had I had the uh, um, chief public health officer Nicola Spurrier in here recently, and 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 I've known Nicola for about thirty years too. And Nicola said, oh, I suppose we can steal her, can we? You know. <laughs> um, and Camille is French, French citizen, French Israeli citizen. So she's she did her medical studies in France, did her um, public health and uh, health economics degrees at London School of Economics. And then worked in uh, medical startups in Israel, so she's got great experience. And when she came here, um, uh, I, I was introduced to her, and we hired, we literally hired her on the spot. She was exactly, you know, sometimes it's kismet, so it was yeah. really the right person at the right time. And she's been able to put a, a very robust program in place to ensure that um, 
all of our grants. Last year we gave out twenty nine twenty nine million dollars in grants. So all of our grants have a have a a, a, a research theme that we're targeting. Uh, the the grant application is assessed thoroughly. That the information that we receive in the grant application is validated, and that um, there's a translational nature to the outcome. So mm-hmm. how do they translate yeah. translate into public health benefits? Mm-hmm. And so um, we're just expanding that area uh, at the moment because it's um, the measurement of impact is uh, is is a uh, a very objective area. You can do it objectively. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a bit of subjectiveness to it, but in the end result. You can work out whether or not you know your surgical procedures are improving, or your cancer treatment is improving, or your or your tr- uh, transplant medicine is improving. It is mm-hmm. very objective, and and that's something we've really immersed ourselves in very deeply. To and and people and the and the people we give grants to are appreciative of that. They realise mm-hmm. that we're serious about measuring their impact, so it puts a added incentive on their work as well. And so um, our we forward forward announce some of our grant programs on, on the basis of how much money I think I'm going to have next year. And then I work really hard to make sure we've got that money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but it takes, it's, it's not as easy as it sounds to provide grants. So it, it takes probably four to six months of planning to release a, a grant round that you know is going to have both the potential impact and the ability to um, acquit Acquit the, the acquit the reporting back to you, yeah. and we owe it to the people that we give grants to to be very clear about what we're trying to achieve. So that's yeah, that department is growing, um, uh, and and we are now. Um, uh, I, I think we're a uh, um, people look at us and go, we need to do what they're doing. Yeah. So that's certainly the feedback we get. Well, that was going to be a follow up question. You, you home lottery. Hospital Research Foundation, in a sense, has a target on its back, I guess, from the, the, there's com- competitors coming through the market, uh, bringing out new uh, or, or alternative options to the home lottery. As a leader of a of you know you say you're one of the first to to do it as as a leader, how do you remain innovative and how do you uh, how do you beat the trends and stay in front? Well, if you think about it, um, if you think about life, really. Um, uh, you, you can describe life on an X and Y axis. You know, mm-hmm. like if you the, the X axis of value, and the Y axis of of um, um, differentiation. You, mm-hmm. you always want to be in the top right hand corner yeah, of the graph. Absolutely. You want to be high value and high differentiation. And yeah. so, you know, that, that's a you know we're always trying to differentiate ourselves and add value. You can often you can do one. Often you see organisations do one or the other. And but we are committed to doing both. We, mm-hmm. you know, you, we, you, you, otherwise, what's the point? What's mm-hmm. the point of making a lot of money in the not-for-profit space unless you are adding value? Correct. And so, I think that that description stands us in good stead. That we've we've got our eye on that ball all the time to make sure that we're we're creating impact in the community, and that we're consistent. You know, consistently trying to differentiate. Myself and my leadership team, you know, when pre-COVID, we we you know, we would go overseas once a year to to to, to scour the, particularly the northern hemisphere market to mm-hmm. go look what's what's happening over here and what's happening over there. It's been a great investment by our organisation because we brought back some, you know, fantastic ideas to see whether or not they could apply to to the Australian marketplace. Mm-hmm. I, I think often um, Australian business leaders. And I include in that not-for-profit business leaders are very insular. They look, 
they see others as the competitor. Other other lottery providers are not my competitors. You know, I think it's wonderful that um, that um, the community responds well to this this brand category. My competitors are gambling apps. Yeah, you know that's yeah. that's my competitor, and my competitor is, um, you know, you know, passionately involved in taking people's money without giving any value back. Yeah. So I've I've got a brand category, and and we lead the brand category in South Australia where we can fulfil an altruistic itch. People think people think quite appropriately that not only they're buying a lottery ticket, but they're having they're, they're helping having have an impact. impact. Yeah. And then we use that money to have an impact. You know, that's, you know, tell me whether sports bet do that. Yeah, you know? 100%. So, do um, you, you know, I, I see the other charities just just slightly behind where our thinking and, and, yeah. and, and going down the same road we do and good on them. Do you feel that it could ever become, the market could ever become flooded? Oh, well, yes and no. I mean, the, the, the people choose, you know, choose with their wallet what what they want to do and it, it's just not as easy as it looks mm-hmm. and so you saw last year um, one of the organizations that decided to get into the you know get into the lottery space went broke um, we ended up um, we didn't have to but we you know as the brand leader in in that space we then made money available to um, the community who relied on that organisation, mm-hmm. so muscular dystrophy went went broke, and so we've now made grants to um, to make sure that those children with muscular dystrophy can actually continue to get services while they're waiting for their NDIS assessment. We don't make a big deal out of that, but that's our you know yeah. that's it's a responsibility we have. Well done. And um, and so you know, I think while we're making an impact, people will still support what we're doing. We're also investigating other. You know, clearly we're not just sitting there waiting. For, yeah, you know, we're, we're doing some other. You things. can't get into that. You don't want to give away. No, your exactly. We, we, there's a few things. <laughs> we'll do that offline. There's a few things coming out that uh, might surprise people, but um, no, that's exciting. Um, yeah, and so um, you know, there's there's always change. Yeah. Change is great. What's the best thing about your job? What's the best thing about my job? T- to be honest, um, you can, you can put it down to three three distinct areas um i get occasional opportunity um it's probably more than occasional probably every couple of weeks i I get to meet with someone that has been the beneficiary of medical treatment that has been funded by our research and uh, i'm getting tingles just talking about it to be honest um that is the best thing about my job that we, you know, our, our impact is real and tangible. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, there's no better feeling, there's yeah. no better feeling than meeting someone that their life's been changed by something that we funded. See the smile um, on their face. Yeah. It's, it's uh, you know, yeah, I really, it really does make a profound effect on me. Um, then, uh, second to that would be, um, uh, I don't get to do this much anymore because I've got staff that do it, but <laughs> telling someone that their research idea is going to be backed in, okay, because right. um, uh, people, you know, we've got some of the brightest minds in the country and some of our brightest minds are the brightest minds in the world who spend months and months and months each year writing grant applications. So we've tried to streamline our process so telling someone that their idea is going to get backed in, and we had a, I had a meeting on Friday afternoon where, where um, we told someone that um, uh, their the grant application for a million dollars has been approved, and you know seriously, it's a, 
it's a it's a great feeling yeah. <laughs> to be able to do it. And then um, <laughs> the third area that I don't get to do that much either anymore, but is tell people they won a lottery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so we've seen, we've seen the Facebook posts. They're all yeah, very yeah. excited. And, uh, you know, there, there's been some absolute crackers of phone calls. Um, you know, is this you, Dave? Oh, Dave, stop fucking, <laughs> you know, stop fucking trying to pull my chain, mate. You know, like it's, and I've literally had, they've had to blank it out on radio, people's reactions. So, um, yeah. and, and that's, um, you know, that's been taken over a little bit by, by the, by the media, but I'm yeah. always there and, it's a it's a huge it's a huge scream, yeah. And many of our winners have stayed on as as long term supporters, so yeah. um, that's that's been good. And I suppose there's a fourth area too. I'm I'm a I'm a great one for for um, you know passing on your experience and knowledge. So I I, I really do enjoy engaging with um, my team mm-hmm. um, about you know what their life you know what what's what's inhibiting them in life and and um, <clears throat> setting. You know, setting appropriate goals and appropriate standards so people can, you know, fulfil their their potential. That's brilliant. Can you going back to point number one about some of the great things that you, the stories that you hear, and the eyewitness that you see of, of the changing of people's lives? Can you provide one really great? Story yeah, there's probably for us? there's probably three really three. That, that that stick stick in my mind. Um, <clears throat> This lady won't mind me mentioning her name. It's Mar- Margaret Harrington, who um, uh, was the first person in the Southern Hemisphere to have a, um, a pancreatic uh, to have a um, islet transplant to treat her type one diabetes. So we're we're talking about a a person who, you know, probably about fifty five when she had her operation. So she had type one diabetes from when she was very young. Um, she was having between eight and twelve diabetic seizures a day, mm-hmm. and some of those were in the middle of the night while she was asleep. So her husband, um, they both they, they live in the Riverland. Her husband um, ha- had to literally sleep with one eye open yeah. uh, to make sure that she got her insulin if she was having a a mid sleep diabetic seizure. She was a teacher. Um, she had to give up teaching. Um, he was a teacher at a different school. He had to be on call to come to her. And through some research funding that we, we've been supporting the renal group in South Australia for since this organisation started. So literally 55 years we've been continuing to fund wow. this group. And so I'm standing on the shoulders of great, great impact from years gone by. They That group did the first live kidney transplant in Australia and it was done here at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital. Um, and they've just they're, they're gold. They're gold as a as a as a as a research and, and translational health group, and and the 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 renal nephrologist in that group is a bloke by the name of Professor Toby Coates, and and he had seen <clears throat> that uh, there was this new new technique that needed needed some exploit. It was a still experimental technique, and he wanted to make it happen here. Um, it was pretty complicated. So we had we, uh, South Australia. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but South Australia has a great reputation in transplant medicine. Yep. Um, but uh, in this particular case, uh, we're talking about in your pancreas. There's things called islets of Lenihan, and it's the islets. I'm talking from a layman's perspective mm-hmm. here. It's those islets that create the pancreas that create the the, the um, insulin enzyme, mm-hmm. and of course. Um, 
in uh, in people with type one diabetes, that enzyme's not being produced. So, and the pancreas is pretty much buggered as well. And so, um, uh, donor pancreases come from people who are dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you need to get to those pancreases very quickly. Organ donor organ donor registries are very important. I'm you know big plug for organ donor registries. Yep. And it probably takes three tra- three three donor pancreases to come up with enough islets to do one transplant. And so Toby helped develop a technique that took uh, isolated those islets and then um, infused those islets into um, Margaret's liver. And within days, uh, part of her liver had evolved to start producing um, enzyme um, uh, that dealt with her diabetes. And by the time she had her second transplant, um, islet transplant, um, within three weeks, I think of her second transplant, she was completely insulin independent. Okay. okay. So, you know, was she cured from diabetes? Well, that's that's a technicality. If you're not re- requiring, she's probably still got diabetes, but she doesn't need insulin yeah. anymore. What she does have, though, is um, uh, uh, re- rejection medication okay. um, that she has to take, which you know, in and on itself is not particularly pleasant, but it's better than it's better than having. Um, so Margaret, we we know Margaret, and we I see her and her fantastic husband probably every six months, and that had a you know that had a major impact on me. Um, the next one would be um, using the same technique, but there's a in, particularly in the indigenous community. It's not only indigenous community, but particularly in the, in the indigenous community, there's a um, chronic pancreatitis is a familial, mm-hmm. it's a genetic thing. Pancreatitis is a it's it's effectively in layman's terms the pancreas eating itself mm-hmm. and chronic pain um, uh, like pain that you know pain that people describe like childbirth but they're all the time and so um, using the same technique what they worked out is if you got get, got the child early enough that you could take the pancreas while it was still relatively healthy and isolate the islets out of that pancreas and then infuse those islets back into the person's liver, you get rid of the pancreas so you don't have pancreatitis anymore, mm-hmm. but you're still producing um, the, the enzyme. Uh, um, and so we've funded um, – it's, it's, it, there's a gap between what the federal government will pay for and the cost of the, mm-hmm. cost of the surgery. So not only have we funded the research into it, but we've funded the gap, $30,000 of surgery. Uh, so far we've funded 11 of them. And so you've got eleven children and some young adults walking around, who who whose life was go, whose life was going to be lives were going to be shortened through chronic pain and, and excruciating pain, who now are completely pain free. And um, I we had the opportunity I had the opportunity to meet one of those young ladies recently, and um, you know she she still you know she she has vivid memories of how bad life mm. was, and um, she's still um, and now she's. She plays uh, uh, first grade netball. She's got a full time job. You know, she's twenty two years of age. She's got a life ahead of her. Mm-hmm. She'll live a she'll live a completely normal life because you know she's she's got the the um, she she'll never suffer from diabetes. She doesn't have any chronic pain, and and she's got her own cells. So they're not yeah. there's no anti rejection medication. That's fantastic. So that would be the the two, and then the last one I suppose is um, the the impact of. Um, we we apart from funding research, we also have some programs that we fund, and so the the two areas is our our support for um, palliative care services, mm-hmm. um, 
and uh, the impact we have on families when their loved ones are in the, the, the last stages of life. And palliative care can go on for years. Yep. And we've we've been funding a program at the Women's and Children's Hospital for Children's Palliative Care. So it's sort of something that no one likes to talk about. But, you know, families who, who have a child who, you know, there, there, there is no hope of recovery. And so mm. therefore that's when you go into palliative care to try and improve your quality of life or how long it remains. That's, that's quite – makes a big impact on me personally and I think anyone who hears about it, to be honest. Yeah. And then the veterans and emergency first responders, mental health area, we you know I, I, we just get daily, daily feedback loop about the impact we're making in that area, particularly around the use of um, um, uh, trauma therapy and art therapy and things like that. So we have a team of nine therapists that uh, provide services in those areas. So it's a you know I get plenty of positive yeah. positive feedback in my job. It's yeah. Uh, yeah amazing work. So congratulations to you and the team on that. That's fantastic. Touching on point four as well, you mentioned uh, your team. Uh, going back to the previous statement, you mentioned your team and how you, one of your the best things about your job was working with mm-hmm. some great leaders. What do you? What would you say your leadership style is? How do you go about your everyday business? Um, I am a great believer that people need to be really, really. Clear. We have to see that we have to be looking at the same photograph, mm-hmm. and so so I make sure that what I you know what I'm thinking they can see, and sometimes it's as as menial as okay, describe to me what I've just asked you to do. Uh, you know, I think that's not a bad technique to use mm-hmm. occasionally, when it, particularly when it's a bit confusing. Yep. Um, uh, I, 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 you know, we have in our executive. So my direct reports, I have some really, really smart people, and it, and individually, they're smarter than I at what they do. And oh. so, you know, don't second guess them. Yeah, and um, be their be their support, be their be their governance feedback. Um, set them set them realistic. Realistic goals, clear success factors, and come back to me if you're having any problems. Mm-hmm. But check in on a regular basis, not just about how they're going, but how they're not 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 only about how they're going from a work perspective, but check in how they're going from a life perspective mm-hmm. as well. So that that would be, you know, our my conversations with my staff will always range. Tell me how you're going on on your plan on a page, you know. So it's a yep. it's a pretty simple synopsis of what are the key issues and Tell me how you're going in life, and how can I help there? Yeah, um, I would say that I'm a. Um, uh, I have areas that I like to deep dive into, but but I'm, Such but as? I'm but, well, uh, I, I'm very interested in our research grant programs, yeah. and 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 I'm very interested in our in our marketing and brand yeah. positioning, Great. and so uh, to the frustration of my colleagues. Uh, I'll occasionally deep dive, <laughs> um, but they also like they like my insights. Yeah, to be honest, absolutely. I've been around for a while, and you know, I've been through you know the '87 crash, and I've been through a number of economic um, uh, great ep- economic downturns, and I think the the benefit of a little bit of experience like that is, hey, don't worry, you mm-hmm. know, like just just st- stay the course. We'll yeah, be, we'll be fine, and. Um, uh, I, I I feel very sorry for um, you know my sort of I've got a couple of heads of department that are sort of late twenties, and this the 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 they 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 weren't they just started working at the GFC you know mm. like they, they they never experienced yeah and you know you could see people just about throw themselves off the cliff don't worry it'll be fine yeah. you know the market will recover and yeah and um, I used to I used to say to people let's well, people just get used to the new normal. And um, and and that's true. So, 
Yeah, I, I don't like to get too granular because I hire people who are better than me. Mm -hmm. um, do the same thing. Yeah. I wouldn't be, I'd, I'd be the dumbest guy on the team, I reckon, <laughs> by a long Well, I, I was really lucky um, <laughs> three years ago, I did a program at Stanford University and I can remember, um, so 10 years apart, I did a program at Harvard and I did a program at Stanford. <clears throat> and but on both occasions, I can remember sitting in the room going, I am the least bright person in this room. Yeah. You know, and it's not a bad you know, everyone's got to have an ego, but it's not bad to go in with a bit of uh, a, a little bit of humble. Yeah, again. humble pie. Hmm. Yeah. You um, what? Moving into non-negotiables for business. I'm interested in what is one of your non-negotiables? If you have to, th if you have to think about whether it's ethical, it's probably not. Okay. Would be my first non-negotiable. Right. Um, uh, People invest a lot of time and money into assessments of ethics, and I, you know, I live by that. Mm. I live by that saying: if you have to think about it, it's too close to the line. Yeah. Okay. That's kept me. It's kept me on the right side of the equation for a long time. Um. Uh, I I think you know, don't fall in love with your own advertising. You know, I said <laughs> I, I said before, you know, the cemetery's full of people that can't be replaced, and that is true. Yeah. And so. Um, I, I'm a, you know, my, my colleagues here think I'm joking about this, but I'm absolutely not joking. You know, I'm a great believer in very warm welcomes mm -hmm. and very swift goodbyes. Yeah. Okay. Once you've checked out, you've checked out. Yeah. And so, you know, people, I've been here sort of 11 years and people say, I don't know how much longer you're going to work here. I said, well, I, I like what I'm doing, but, um, um, uh, when I go, uh, there'll be no, you know, grand tour of farewells. Yeah. There'll be an empty office. Yeah. You know, and people think I'm joking about I've that. Done but, my day. but, you know, make, let the next person have clear air. You know, yeah. that's the thing. So warm welcomes and swift goodbyes would be one of my non-negotiables. Right. Um, and, you know, I think I said to you uh, a few weeks ago, if you want something good and you want it for nothing, you get something good for nothing. <laughs> so you've got to, you've got to invest. <laughs> yeah. You have to invest time and effort and sometimes money to get good outcomes, you, nothing, nothing really good happens on the cheap. You've got to invest, and and your currency sometimes is your time. Um, so, um, my, from a from my from my team's perspective, I suppose um, I'm always interested in um, people's plans for the future and how I can help them with that. Uh, you know, every single person in this organisation has a, a PD plan. Mm -hmm. Um, I completely respect someone who wants to come to work, get paid and go home and not mm. think about it. Completely yep. respect that. There's, yep. That's no problem at all. I learned that very early in my leadership career. There are some people that just you'll frighten the hell out of them if you start talking to them about study. But uh, I say to people, uh, if you if you want to advance, if you, if you want to um, attain higher levels of opportunity to create impact, then you need to put a bit of time in yourself. And so I'm happy to help you to do that. We'll help you with your study. We'll help you with study time and things like that. But you've got to you've got to meet me halfway. So that's a bit of a non-negotiable. I've been, you know, my chief operating officer, um, Bryony Marshall, and I've been working together 15 years. And you know, when and she'll tell you that when I when I first hired her 15 years ago, I said to her, um, "You're you're 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 you will never have worked as hard outside of office hours as you're going to work because I want you to." And I was talking to her about doing an MBA. And, and she thought I was crazy. Yeah. And 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 eight years later, she finished her MBA. You know. And um, uh, and so I'm I'm really keen on helping people uh, achieve 
what they want to achieve. But sometimes that takes a bit of nudging. It it does. Mm. It does. And it is a big thing accepting those who just want to work. And yeah, like you said, we need to respect that decision. Yeah, but it creates the, the, the sort of ecosystem when when you, when an organisation and a leadership team really supports people improving themselves. What happens is someone comes in and goes, "Yeah, I just want to, I just want an interesting job that I can get paid and do." Yeah, within within a month, they're saying, "You know, I wouldn't mind doing that yeah, course over I, there. I wouldn't mind doing that course yeah. over there." If the ecosystem is there, correct. Then, well, you're a product of your environment. Yes, and so we we have that culture here, and so you know, culture is a funny word. Because people think culture just happens. Culture, culture is the end result of a lot of inputs. Yeah. And so you focus on the process of those inputs, and you end up with a good culture. People say to me here, oh, "You guys got a great culture," you know. So well, that's that's because we invest heavily in it and we talk about it. And, mm. um, yeah. So what what are some of the things that you do for your culture? Well, first of all, we've got a um, we've got a culture. Uh, we've got cultural objectives that, mm-hmm. that are part of our narrative. Yeah. So we have um, a value statement that is that is around the place, and and those you know those values are around respect and innovation, and and um, being uh, being supporter centric and being impact driven. Mm-hmm. And then we have um, a code of conduct, which is a you know a standard document. But then we've we've devolved that into. Uh, uh, a document called above the line, below the line Perfect. behavior. Yeah. A lot of and, work in that space. That's yeah, great. and um, we've got a we've, and, and all through the offices here, there's there's signs that you know here are the above the line comp- comp- competencies, yeah. and here are the below the line behaviors. And we accept that everybody travels below the line yeah. now and again. Yeah, we also then treat it with a great deal of humor. Yeah. And um, it's not. It's very common. It's very common in a meeting for someone to say, <laughs> "Hey, was that a bit below the line?" Yeah, and everyone laughs. Yeah. But it's just a gentle reminder that you know that might have been in a, in another context might not have been taken so well. Yeah, and so it really is a great tool. We we actually we didn't we didn't invent this tool. No. In fact, I was talking to a anaesthetist who. <clears throat> Was talking to me about this tool they use in the operating theater, yeah, like a high pressure environment. I said, oh, "Can I have a look at it?" And he says, "It's above the line, below the line yeah. behavior." And I'm, and to be honest, I'm the person most people say, "Paul's that a bit below <laughs> the line?" You know. <laughs> look, we, we uh, as you know, we yeah. work a lot in the culture space, so we've used the up above it is above and below the line yeah. uh, um, product and terminology quite a fair bit. It's fantastic. What? If you spend your time and most of your time in below the line, that's when it becomes, that's when it becomes an issue. It becomes yeah. ineffective. You become ineffective as a business. Yeah, we had a, a about four years ago. We had a staff member. She wasn't here very long, but she made a. You know, I didn't hear it, but it was reported back to me by half a dozen people within two minutes. She made a an overtly racist comment to one of our other colleagues. Now, I I, I sacked her on the spot. Mm. You know, I didn't ask for an explanation. I didn't. I just sacked her on the spot. Now. Now, yeah, okay, you know, modern human R, HR theory says, you know, you've got to go through a process. Oh, sometimes you just got to make the right call yeah. and accept that you're going to pay if it gets to court. And it, she did make a racist comment. It was intentional and it was completely unacceptable. But I wanted to send a message to the team. It's completely unacceptable. Yeah. Now, yes, you know, I mean, she could have taken us to the IR tribunal and then, 
it, it would have all come out that she was a racist. She wasn't going to do that. No. You know? um, and no, so I, think the beauty I, I gambled of, with that. <laughs> well, the beauty of what you've done is, like you've said, you've called bad behaviour and you've set an example. We, we don't tolerate that sort of stuff here. So that's a, yeah, a great... And, and the behaviour that we don't tolerate in this workplace is behaviour that was common 30 years ago yeah. that, that, I, that I grew up in you know like yeah. so you you have to be you have to change with the times you know like yeah. i look at some of the things now that are unacceptable that were just common 30 years ago and go my god you know that was you know and i was i was part of that you know so you have to change with the times you have to be a you have to be a, a self-analytical person and go you know is does your behavior meet the standards that you're asking other people's other people to and i i haven't always been perfect but i've learned i've learned by my mistakes so um and so you're um, big on your mistakes, aren't you? Yeah. We've had conversations yeah. before. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you're a big... I've been divorced twice. Yeah. <laughs> well, you learn from your mistakes. <laughs> you, you're, uh, you're big on the mindset and the mistakes element, which I absolutely love because I'm in the same category. Can, can you give us a little bit of a, a background to your, your thought process on, on that? Well, uh, about... Um, I suppose the first time it really this really became apparent to me was was in uh, kind of late eighties, um, and I was a a, a young ish commodities trader, and um, I, I was fairly in love with my own position, to be honest. Um, and um, so it was a bit I, of a head wobble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the and the um, that my organisation, the Commonwealth Bank, had had. You know, I was doing. To be honest, I was doing a really good job. I was making them a lot of money. Yeah. Great. And they said, "Look, okay, we, we want to broaden your parameters, and, and we, we're not. We want to expand your risk profile." Was the was the internal way yep. to do it? And so we, we want to broaden your parameters. We'd like you to like you to trade a bit broader than what you're doing. And um, and I thought, oh, you know, geez, how good am I? And uh, <laughs> And I can remember this uh, this day uh, like it was yesterday. Uh, I one of my clients, I, I happened to know what side of the market he was on. I knew he'd be selling a currency to me, so often you didn't know. You, you had to make a, make a market, but in this particular case, I just knew that he was going to be selling, and so I I bought uh, a, a thirds currency, Papua New Guinea Kina, from him, and and the. Um, <laughs> The, the at that time I think interest rates in Australia were around four percent and the interest rates in Papua New Guinea were around fifteen percent. So the interest rate differential was quite high. So it was actually possible to make a bit of money, all other things being equal, the currency not moving too fast. Yep. You can make a bit of interest rate differential. So I, I made a call, it was about three hundred thousand Kina from memory, and I made a call to hang on to it. And uh, the next day the Papua New Guinea government devalued its currency by twenty percent. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I I can't remember how much it was, but it seemed like an awful lot of money at the time. It might have been twenty five thousand. I lost. Yeah. And I, I back in the, the day. yeah, it was not late nineteen eighties. Yeah. I was I was making a lot of money for them, but yeah, still, you know, um, uh, I buzzed through to my boss who was in Sydney. Um, we had we had exceptional technology in the late eighties that people really didn't see day to day for ten years, and I told him, <laughs> and he's just. Absolutely, let rip every swear word you can. <laughs> he's uh, berated you. Yeah, he really has. He really has. He's, he's quite a he's quite a colourful bloke. And um, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, I, his name was Kevin Durkin. Yeah. I said, so Durko, I suppose you know, jobs on the line. He said, he, he said "Fuck off, Flynn. So I've just invested twenty five thousand dollars in your training. You think I'm going to get rid of you now?" And I thought to myself, "What a great attitude! Yeah, you know, amazing. what a great attitude!" And I remember. 
when I went to Adelaide Bank, having uh, the very same discussion with with a a, a, a sort of fifty year old senior banking. There's a very young bloke at the time, but he's now a fifty year old senior bank executive. Yeah. And um, there was an issue at one of our branches. He'd come in as a graduate, and he was doing his rotation as a teller. And he lost a couple of grand yeah. on a on a. Uh, I, I could see what happened. A, a bloke saw an opportunity and pinched two thousand dollars of customer. Yeah, and I can remember saying to him that um, he he would just oh my god, you know, like I've I've breached protocol and and even on the camera you could see the bloke had pinched it, but and and he and he was shattered and and he said oh you know does this mean I'm out of a job and I said I've just invested two thousand dollars yeah, in your training why would I you know brilliant and uh, he he reminded me of that sort of fifteen years later yeah wow. um uh, he is a senior bank executive in yeah. South Australia I won't mention his name but fifteen years later he said to him do you remember when he said that had a profound impact on me and so I'm I'm a great believer that you've you've got to make mistakes you've got to stretch yourself you you know some mistakes are going to be professional and some mistakes are going to be personal. Um, as long as you can own your mistakes and move on from them and be better for it, then it's it's a great investment. It it's is. a great investment. Mm. So I'm just conscious of your time. We won't take too much uh, more of your time. Uh, but I'm really interested in, you, you mentioned earlier, your beautiful daughter and family life. Yes. You're a very busy man in the media a fair bit. How do you manage? I've got a face for radio. You've now. got a face for radio. That's why we're doing podcasts, but we are filming. Uh, do how do you? I'm really interested in. I obviously run my own business. I have my own family, two young, beautiful daughters, a beautiful wife. I'm really conscious of both the work life balance or the blend of whatever it is. I guess we call life where where work and life intertwine. How do you? manage your time and are, are there any sort of tips that you can give yeah, the listeners? Well, yeah, I, I think you have to compartmentalize. So, you know, I come from a, a large family, um, close close family. I, I, I lost a brother uh, who, who was 18 when I was 15. So we had trauma in our family. and um, But I've always always valued valued family and, you know, we, we were a close family and, and my, my, I've I've got uh, three siblings still alive. My parents are both dead, and, and I, I would speak to my siblings. They're, they're ones in Adelaide. The rest are not you know, ones overseas. And, but I speak to them you know, a couple of times a week, all of them, and and my nieces and nephews. So I've always been a family oriented person. Um, I suppose my position in my broader family was the person that brought people together mm -hmm. regularly. Um, and as as I think I said to you before, I, I had an opportunity as a, as a step parent. I invested. I invested a lot of time and effort into that and got a lot of rewards from it, a lot of personal rewards from it. And then um, I thought um, my, my ex-wife couldn't have any more kids because of a health condition and uh, I thought my, my parenting, you know, my, my days as a, as, a, as a parent were probably over. And then, then um, after we'd, we got divorced and I was kind of pretty keen on not, not being with anyone for a while, but I, just, I met my partner, um, at, at, a, at, a, at a fundraiser and, you know, sometimes you sort of see someone, you go, it just takes your breath away. And, and, and Sam, my partner, Sam, I can remember seeing her across the room and she smiled at a group of people and they all lit up. And I thought, oh, my God, <laughs> you know, she's beautiful. 
And I thought I had no chance. Yeah. And, and uh, but I'm a Bad great believer. Well, I'm a great believer. You sort of pick this, pick the prettiest girl in the room and ask her out. What's the worst that can happen? Yeah. You know. And that's and that's what I did. Like, literally, you know, about an hour later, I happened to meet her and we were chatting away. Um, and I said, "How'd you like to go out?" And, and it was so funny because she tells the story exactly the same way. I was looking straight in her eyes and said, "How'd you How'd you like to go out?" And she. But you could see what she was saying. How do I get out of this? How do I get out of this? How do I get out of this? I just kept the eye contact. After about what hold seemed like a minute. Yeah, yeah hold the silence. She said, she said, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. And um, yeah. I said, when? He's not, okay. he's not going away. And we've never, we haven't been apart since. And, That's um, great. And she, to try and get me out of, to try and get me not interested, she she dropped into conversation on our first day. She said, oh, I'm thinking about, you know, because I was 50 at the time. I'm thinking about. No, so that's not. I was forty-seven when we first started seeing yeah. each other. I'm thinking about maybe having another child. I said, "Good, so am I." You know, yeah, <laughs> and she couldn't get rid of me. No. And um, I, uh, it, 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 it's been an amazing, um, you know, nearly thirteen years. You know, I've, I've been absolutely blessed to be able to become a father. And I made a decision pretty early on that you just got to be in the moment. Mm. You, 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 um, you know, children don't stay children for long having lost a brother uh, as a, when I was a teenager I realized it's it could be gone just like that and so we have a we have a policy that we have a meal together as a family at least once a day if 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 it's possible and most days it's it's possible and so um you know we would I'm the morning person and Sam's the evening person mm -hmm. and um uh, I I have a view that um uh, housework is not Housework. My mother was the the boss of our family, and she taught every single one of us to iron and yeah. cook and stuff like that. So you do as much as you possibly can, not because you're doing it for the other person. You're doing it because if you don't do it, someone else has to. Yeah. Okay. So you know, don't you know, typical bloke, don't step over that pile of dirty clothes. You know, put them, <laughs> put them in the washing machine. Yeah. Um, do the dishes, things like that. You know, after a while, it becomes habit. And I can remember hearing at a at a, a passing out parade a, a a very senior American uh, general um, talking about ha forming habits, mm -hmm. and he said, I've, "You know, if, if I say to anything to make you better every morning, get into the get into the habit of yeah. doing things." And so I, I I wanted to try and be that person. I wanted to be that person that you know I'd rather sit on the couch yeah. and do nothing, but I wanted to be the person that my kids saw was an equal partner in a mm -hmm. relationship, and. Um, so we make that effort. I, you know, I get get involved in the school. I was last night, for example, it was Sunday night. I was at over at the school at a at a strategic planning meeting for the school board, and and so you just got to make time, and and that means that if you have to do a bit of work at night, you do it after the kids go to bed. Yeah, uh, and um, I'm very lucky because my partner's a professional as well, and you know we both would um, probably sit down and start doing a bit of work about nine o'clock. Yeah. Um, so make that time. You know, well, one thing I think we've had in a previous discussion was that you said that you make time for one meal at minimum of one meal per day, and I correct. think that is, I think that's huge. Yeah, I and they can be crackers. Yeah. You know, like some of the conversations you have as kids grow. I've got a seventeen-year-old son, and when he was about fourteen, I, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a believer. Love is love. You know, you yeah. you can't you can't you fall in love with whoever you fall yeah. in love with. So I was a big fan of the the you know. Um, gay marriage thing yeah. and all that sort of stuff, and I started to talk to Jake uh, when he was about four, and I said, oh, "Look, mate, you know, I'm his stepfather, but he, he doesn't see his dad much." Yeah. And so, uh, you know, Jake, one day, 
you know, at 14, you got to have this discussion. I taught yeah. him to shave, you know. Yeah, yeah. So one day you're going to, someone's going to make you feel a bit different, a bit special, you know, and, and it could be a boy, it could be a girl. We don't care. Okay. But, you know, you need to be respectful and all that sort of thing. So we continually had this discussion. He seemed all right with having that discussion, to be honest. And then about two months ago, I, I, I said to him, mate, you know, I, I want to reinforce with you, um, you know, the fact that, um, you know, there could be someone that's special in your life. Could be a boy, could be a girl. I like girls. <laughs> right. Will you stop it? <laughs> and, um, but the but, fact that I can have that conversation yeah, with absolutely. my stepson um, and he, he'll sit there and take it yeah. <laughs> is, uh, I think, a big win. Yeah, that's big huge. win. Yeah. Very good. All right. We're uh, well past the hour, Mark. So thank you uh, for your time. Before, when, as we round off, I like to just ask a few quick fire questions. Sometimes they turn into longer than a quick fire. <laughs> it really depends on how you uh, how you answer them. We have spoken about books, and you're a big reader, you're a big learner. Is there a particular book or books that you could recommend uh, to the listeners about you know personal growth journey, some things that you've learned, or is there one that you turn to uh, quite a fair bit? I don't turn to books, but there's certain excerpts from certain books that that ring true for me. So um, the, the the book written, the novella by uh, Nicola Machiavelli, written in the 14th century, has some absolute the prince, uh, was it the, the prince, the prince, the prince. Yeah, the prince, yeah. yeah. Um, you read that. It's it's obviously written in Latin, but if it's been translated to English, you read that. Nothing's changed in 700 yeah. years. You know, well, that nothing. goes back to your point on the we'll be right. Yeah, you know, yeah. we know what's going to happen. It's exactly. The same, yeah. yeah. Nothing has changed in bureaucracy in 700 years. Yeah. And and so that, for me, uh, allows me a few shortcuts because yeah. don't get frustrated with bureaucracy. It's just the way it is. Yeah. Okay. Um, people will be people. There was a book written in the 80s by Ricardo Semler called Maverick. Um, it was uh, about self-managed teams. And um, the, the book itself was was interesting because it was the son of the, you know, the fourth generation of a business in Brazil and, um, you know, how he had to open his mind to new ways of thinking. And so it doesn't, it really, in the end result, didn't matter what he did, but mm-hmm. it was it was the concept of opening your mind to new ways of thinking, yeah. which has always has always been important to me. So it's a good read, Maverick, actually. It's, a, it's, it's not the read. Top Gun stuff, but it's... No, uh, no, it's about <laughs> self-managed, self-managed teams yeah, and, and a South, Amer- South American perspective. I yeah. think he made more money from his book than he did from his business, but... Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, we'll put these in the show notes too. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> there's a book written by um, uh, having having the finance sector background. If you want to read a a, 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 a a catastrophic failure of process, there's a book called The Smartest Guys in the Room. It's oh, the yeah. story of Enron. Enron. Yeah, I've read that. Oh, seriously, I, I read that and I, I can remember, no, 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 no. Oh, you did it. No, oh, you no, did no, no. It. Oh, you did it. You know? Yeah. And um, that that's actually had a really interesting interesting impact on me about making sure history doesn't repeat itself yeah, you know, like it doesn't have to there's um, another book similar to that called bad blood it's, bad, you told me about yeah it. yeah it's I'm, a, I'm gonna dig that out yeah. i wrote that down the other day yeah, when you mentioned it get onto that as well. and then the, the the last book that that, that i always like to amuse myself uh, when people ask me this question is it's called um the monk who sold his ferrari <laughs> yes. and it was the book it was probably the book that, con- that that contributed most to my second breakup of second marriage and because um, uh, my 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 wife was going through some challenges, uh, emotional challenges, and she she someone showed her this book, and she it became like her Bible, and and it was and I probably didn't fully appreciate how difficult her her emotional 
problems were. And I used to mock this book because the guy made more money from the book than. <laughs> um, and um, it just it. Whenever I think about that book, I think about my behaviour in the relationship that you know I I was mocking the things that she was holding on to. Mm. Okay, and um, she was holding on to the fact that this person had had a emotional breakdown was able to come back from it mm. and so whenever i think about that book i think to me, i think to myself you know you, you made a mistake there in how you treated your wife's beliefs and you ended up not being married and so you know that's the i never read the book but that one always comes it's to mind an impactful yeah. had an impact had in an impact roundabout, on me, yeah. in a roundabout way mm. Excellent. So a bit, few trivial questions just to finish off. If you had access to a time machine, where would you go? If I had access to a time machine, I'd probably go back to um, 1976 January and and uh, talk talk to my brother about not getting in a car uh, before he had a car accident mm. would be would be. You know, had a that my brother's death when I was fifteen. He was eighteen. Had a profound impact on our family, and um, um, that's probably where I'd go. Yeah, yeah. He wouldn't have listened to me, but no, <laughs> no, yeah, no. But mm. yeah, I'm a big uh, superhero and Marvel fan. <laughs> if you had one superhero power. What would it be? Iron Man. Iron Man. Man. There is no, I don't even think about it. So the smarts of Iron Man. uh, Yeah, I just, I'm a big Avengers fan. Yeah. And and so uh, (laughs) Iron Man. um, No uh, better character. uh, Occasionally when I get up in the morning and uh, I'm shaving, I I see Thor. Yeah. But... uh, (laughs) No, I see the resemblance. There's a bit. There's a bit in Endgame where he's put on a few. Kids. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I remember that movie. Yes. No. no yeah, yeah, you yeah. are uh, Chris, Chris Hemsworth as a doppelganger. I would say. Yeah. <laughs> now, outside of your business goals, what's one thing that's on your bucket list? What's one thing on my bucket list? Well, I'd like to see my daughter um, grow up yeah. and and be happy, and yeah. so. You know, I want to, I want to, I want to live live a healthy life and and be in the moment for a long time. That's probably the my soul. You know, that would be the most important thing mm-hmm. in yeah, my yeah. in my life. Yeah, um, yeah I'd, I'd I'd like to make sure that um, you know I lost my father when I was twenty one. I'd like to make sure that my children don't have to bear that burden mm. uh, because it was a burden, not just on me but on my siblings. Brilliant. And you just mentioned your daughter, so you are a father. We know. Uh, what's your best dad joke? Surely there's one floating around. There. Oh, <laughs> yeah, there is. I'm not allowed. I'm, be, I'm, be not, I'm not allowed to. I'm not allowed to say it. But um, <laughs> the uh, what are the what is what's the um, you know you can you can use your app to go and trace these trace trace these things. You know you can uh, the Pokemon Pokemon yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's one of the Pokemon that. Um, Sounds like someone sneezing. The name sounds like someone sneezing. So I always try and get her to say it. And I say, you know, bless you. Bless you. Pikachu. Is Pikachu. That- bless you. That's it. Pikachu. Bless you. Yeah. And I'm just not allowed to do no, it anymore. And, that's I, horrible. And, I, and I get great joy out of it. And, you know, like she's nine, but she's just starting to roll her eyes at that one. So please don't. And she'll, please don't do that again, Dad. Don't do it around my friends either. Yeah. And uh, no, yeah. it's horrible. Right. So, pick, pick a tube, bless that's you. the best thing about being a dad, exactly. You can, say, bless you. You can tell shit jokes. Yeah, we have, um, <laughs> we have uh, at dinner often, 
uh, we have uh, pun offs. Yeah. And so who can who, who can, can do the, who yeah. can just build the best puns? I and love it. So my my son is really good at it, and um, Eden is getting good at it. And so Sam sits there and listens to the three of us. <laughs> you know, you know, someone mentions egg, and so yeah. the next thing there's eighteen words with egg in it yeah. or something like that. It's excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She was. She's often ecstatic about it. Um, <laughs> Brilliant. Excellent. All right. We'll round up there. Thank you very, very much for your time today. It's greatly appreciated. Where do we? Where do we find you? Uh, well, <laughs> you find me at the Hospital Research Foundation or on LinkedIn. Um, uh, Paul Flynn. Um, I. I, I I respond to all requests except singing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, no karaoke for you. No either. karaoke for me. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's just to protect people. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time and we would love to catch up again soon. Thank you. Thanks, Appreciate Paul. It. Bye-bye. Thank you once again for joining us here at Creating Synergy. It's been great spending this time with you. Please jump on to the Synergy IQ Facebook and LinkedIn page where the discussion continues after the show. Join our mailing list so you'll know what's happening next at synergyiq.com.au. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And if you really enjoyed it, please share it with your friends.